So hi, it's Zane Horowitz in the Gang at the Oregon Poison Center for a journal club for March 20th, 2008. Our topic today is beta blocker use in cocaine toxicity. We will tackle um, what is now renewed controversy in the area, uh, reviewing a new, ar new articles and guidelines that have just come out, but go back to the beginning and talk about where forth they have come from. And this is our last supper, our last drug-sponsored uh, fittingly, on the Thursday before Easter, the Last Supper, uh, sponsored by drug companies, we are going to be ethically above board now and will not take any more pizza or sandwiches or even cookies um, from any drug companies in accordance with the ethical policy guidelines. Uh, and and no drug, no cocaine manufacturers have sponsored this lunch either. <laughs> Just, so anyway, they're next in line. Uh, so <laughs> moving, moving along to sort of a tantalizing first case. Uh, is really just a case report recently published, December 2007, in the Journal of MedTox um, by um, Fareed Chan and Bob Hoffman out of uh, New York Poison Center. And it just sort of is a case called Death Temporarily Related to the Use of a Beta Adrenergic Receptor Antagonist in Cocaine-Associated Myocardial Infarction. Kind of a mouthful, but um, basically there gives you sort of the issue we're talking about with at least a face or a case on it. So this is a 54-year-old male, came into the emergency department, had three hours of chest pain, um, daily use of both cigarettes and cocaine, the two biggest risk factors for cocaine-associated myocardial infarction, used approximately a gram of intranasal cocaine at an unspecified time just before he developed his mid-pressure-like pain radiated to his back with nausea and vomiting, exacerbated by physical activity, in short, a great story for cardiac ischemia. They gave him nitroglycerin spray, a baby aspirin, and he said that over the last several days he's had similar self-limited symptoms, including also orthopnea and paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. Tommy gets to the ED, he's pain-free. Vital signs are not too hyperdynamic. His blood pressure is 145 over 95. His pulse is 114. Gets oxygen, gets a little uh, valium, or more than a little valium. Gets 15 milligrams of valium IV over 25 minutes with no change in his vital signs. His troponin was elevated at 1.5. Urine tox was positive for cocaine. Uh, chest x-ray showed a little cardiomegaly with a little CHF. And about an hour, almost two hours after triage, the patient gets a full dose of aspirin and metoprolol, 2.5 milligrams IV, not even a full five milligrams that we usually give uh, for his tachycardia that remains at 115. There's no change in his vital signs, and five minutes later, he gets the final dose of metoprolol, 2.5 milligrams again, which would be between the two of them, a regular full starting dose. 10 minutes later, he has crushing substernal chest pain, 10 out of 10, diaphoresis, nausea, and essentially he drops his blood pressure to 50, and codes, and they couldn't get him back. Yeah, transthoracic echo is performed, um, shows akinesis of his left ventricle without any evidence of pericardial effusion, and they even did a fast exam of his abdomen, didn't show a perforated viscous or free fluid, and unfortunately they weren't able to back up why he died with a post-mortem exam because the family refused, but then they go on to discuss, of course, the risks of giving beta blockers to people who have cocaine-associated uh, myocardial ischemia. So to see where all that came from, we need to go back to a couple of series of articles done by a cardiologist out of Texas called Richard Lang back in the early 80s, um, started cathing people um, and 
found a subgroup of people who used cocaine to cath and did a series of uh, now relatively uh, well-quoted, often quoted experiments on them with cocaine-induced coronary vasoconstriction. To tell us about these is our own Nate McCohen. So the first article we're going to talk about is out of the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, it was released December 7th of 1989, and it was by Lang et al. out of uh, University of Texas Southwestern Medical Stu uh, Center, and the title of the article was Cocaine-Induced Coronary Artery Vasoconstriction. Uh, in their background, uh, at that time, uh, a number of uh, physicians were still using cocaine anesthesia for a number of rhinolaryngologic procedures. Uh, and uh, they, they say that uh, about 90% of otolaryngologists use cocaine routinely for anesthesia during nasal surgery. Uh, at this point in time, uh, there had not been a lot of research into the effects of cocaine uh, and uh, cardiac uh, disease. Uh, and so uh, they uh, undertook the study to understand the effects of cocaine on coronary vasculature. Uh, so what they did is they took 45 patients, there were 34 men, 11 women, uh, who were between the ages of 36 to 67 years, uh, who were going to undergo cardiac catheterization for the evaluation of chest pain. <clears throat> they don't necessarily say how these people were recruited, uh, but they say that these people had chest pain and so someone uh, evaluate, who evaluated them decided that uh, they needed to do a uh, cardiac catheterization. So this protocol was approved by the Human Subjects Review Committee, uh, although probably trying to get it past an IRB now would be a little bit more difficult. <clears throat> All patients gave uh, written consent. They were not uh, compensated uh, for being involved in this study. Uh, they asked that any anti-anginal agents, uh, so any nitrates, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, uh, were discontinued more than 12 hours before the study. Uh, they were all fasting and they were all given, uh, they were pre-medicated with uh, 5 to 10 milligrams of diazepam. Uh, so uh, they uh, inserted a thermodilution catheter uh, and uh, made determinations of the coronary sinus blood flow and they used, uh, they used a thermodilution technique for that. They measured uh, some uh, baseline variables, heart rate, arterial pressure, coronary sinus blood flow. Uh, they also calculated uh, oxygen content, and then they also uh, uh, used an angiography and looked at uh, diameters uh, of uh, different blood vessels. Uh, so then once they did the baseline studies, each patient was randomly assigned uh, to receive either intranasal saline, and that was the control group or group one, or 10% cocaine hydrochloride solution, and that was group two. Uh, and they used a dose of two milligrams per kilogram of body weight. Uh, and the uh, first 25 patients that were, they were randomly assigned, both the investigator and the patients were aware of the agent, and that was either saline or cocaine. For the next 20 patients, neither, uh, it was blinded, so uh, neither the investigator nor the patient know which agent was administered. So about 15 minutes after administration, uh, they did all the measurements again. Uh, they also measured the serum cocaine concentration, uh, and then they again, you know, shot some dye into the uh, left coronary artery and uh, took some measurements uh, later on. <clears throat> they also took an additional five patients out of group one, and that was the control group, and then 19 of, of the patients in group two, those were the patients that got cocaine, uh, were randomly assigned to receive a five-minute intracoronary infusion of saline or phentolamine. <clears throat> 
and they got a total dose of about two milligrams uh, of phentolamine. Uh, and that part was completely blinded, neither the investigator nor the patient knew which agent was infused. And then about, uh, they don't say how long after, but they say after this infusion, they again measured all the variables. Uh, so they used uh, repeated measures analysis, analysis of variance uh, for determining significance. Uh, they also used uh, two-way ANOVA uh, as well for repeated measures. Uh, and they go on to say that uh, the results for the first 25 patients, so that was uh, the patients in whom drug administration was not blinded, were pretty similar to the next 20 in whom the drug administration was blinded. So they combined all of the data and uh, uh, analyzed it all together. And they say, you know, a p-value of less than 0.05 was considered statistical significance. So their results, they found out of the 45 patients, 11 had angiographically, angiographically normal coronary arteries, 20 had, 21 had one vessel disease, 6 had 2, 7 had 3, and then out of the 21 patients with one vessel disease, only the right coronary artery was narrowed in 6, so 17 patients had angiography angiographically normal left coronary artery. So in the group one, and that was a control group, uh, there was no difference in any of the variables uh, before or after, there was no change in the variables from before and after uh, nasal administration of saline. And then there were no changes in the variables after uh, administration of phentolamine. So in group two, which was the patients given cocaine, uh, Serum concentration they list as 0 0.092 milligrams per liter, uh, which they go on in their discussion to say is you know pretty similar to other results for other studies that people have done. So what they noticed that after they gave these patients cocaine, the heart rate arterial pressure and the combined heart rate arterial pressure product increased, as did the transcardiac oxygen content difference. And these results are shown in table one for those who are following along. Despite an increase in myocardial oxygen demand, uh, and they say that that was noted by the heart rate arterial pressure product and transcardiac oxygen content difference, the coronary sinus blood flow decreased and coronary vasculature resistance increased in all patients, again listed in table one. They also noted diffuse constriction of the left anterior descending coronary artery and the circumflex coronary artery was observed when they shot the dye into the arteries. No patients out of this group had chest pain or, or EKG, ECG changes suggestive of ischemia. So then, when they gave... Which uh, suggests that as a healthy patient, you can potentially have some nasal cocaine a single dose and suffer decreased blood flow and increased heart rate and still not have any chest pain, which will be different than what we talk about later with patients who do come in with chest pain. So the other thing that they noticed is that um, people without... Yeah, without um, you know, any coronary disease and people with, uh, the uh, percent change or percent difference from baseline uh, was pretty similar. Um, so then, when they gave phentolamine to uh, the patients, uh, they noticed a reversal of the alterations in their heart rate, uh, blood pressure, uh, and uh, and their oxygen content, oxygen delivery, all those uh, all those variables that they looked at. So those were the results. So they go on to say in their discussion, uh, you know, cocaine um, for anyone who doesn't know, it's a local anesthetic, produces both central and adrenergic stimulation, and it blocks the presynaptic reuptake of norepinephrine and dopamine. 
So it increases uh, postsynaptic concentrations. Uh, at the time that they did this study, uh, it was commonly used uh, in a variety of uh, rhinolaryngeal procedures. Uh, and uh, so the reason why they say that they want to do this is to try to figure out if it was going to be, you know, potentially harmful to people that did have underlying coronary artery disease. Uh, that, that was always the worry at the time. You know, somebody comes in and they're like 80 years old and they have a nosebleed and their blood pressure is already like 180 over 110. Do you pack their nose with cocaine to stop the bleeding, which was sort of the usual way of doing it at a time where you figure out something else. And I think people were starting to say that that may be a pretty risky thing to do in these older folks and maybe even some younger folks as well. So continuing on in the discussion, you know, they basically, you know, state in their discussion, they have, you know, concluded that uh, cocaine consistently increases myocardial oxygen demand. Uh, it also decreases uh, myocardial oxygen supply by decreasing the amount of blood flow that goes through the, through the coronary arteries. Um, and they also go on to state that when given fentolamine, it pretty much reverses uh, all of these effects that they've seen. Uh, so one of their conclusions is that <coughs> cocaine does cause coronary vasoconstriction by stimulating alpha-adrenergic receptors, basically because fentolamine reversed uh, the, you know, the changes that they saw. So kind of you know, in, their, in their discussion, they talk you know, a little bit about people without coronary disease when they, you know, when, when they're given alpha-adrenergic stimulation either by exercise, cigarette smoking, exposure to cold, you get a systemic vasoconstriction but you preserve coronary blood flow and that's usually probably by, you know, auto-regulation. And they say that cocaine probably, you know, overwhelms the local regulatory mechanisms that preserve coronary blood flow because they didn't, you know, they didn't see that when they uh, gave uh, these people cocaine. So some of the you know limitations that they discuss in their article is that they really didn't uh, measure regional blood flow. They actually they could only measure you know whole uh, total coronary flow. So that might have been a limitation uh, in that they weren't really getting regional. Although they did look at uh, um, you know angiographically they measured the measured the uh, coronary arteries. Uh, and did notice that you know uh, the left uh, anterior descending and the circumflex artery did uh, definitely narrow, and those results were statistically significant. One of the other limitations they mentioned is that they didn't really explore other routes of cocaine administration, uh, but they feel that you know the majority of cocaine use is by intranasal, uh, and the most of the reported cocaine-associated MIs have occurred after cocaine was uh, nasally used. So they, you know, kind of conclude that uh, that was probably the best way to study, have studied that. Yeah, I think it's just basic, straightforward, good physiology. They took people with some mild and, and some non-coronary disease, they gave them cocaine, and they proved it was mostly the alpha uh, effect that caused coronary vasoconstriction, and they were able to block it with an alpha-blocking agent, fentolamine. So the question is, is, should that be the one and only way to approach it? Or are there other ways? Or what happens when we use other agents in trying to treat cocaine chest pain? So to follow that up, they uh, went so, back yeah, to the so, uh, same, same uh, patient pool. So and actually, so their next step was to try to figure out uh, if beta blockers or beta adrenergic blocking agents, uh, you know, could be potentially used uh, to treat these patients. Uh, so this was the next year. 
uh, out of Annals of Internal Medicine, and this was Lang et al. and still in the same uh, medical center. Uh, so what they did with this group is that they took 30 patients, 25 men, 5 women, uh, kind of same age range, and they did the exact same thing. These patients were being uh, evaluated for chest pain. They recruited them into the study. Uh, the protocol was approved. They held the antianginal uh, medications like the last study. Uh, this time they put in a pacing thermodilution catheter instead of just a straight thermodilution catheter. Uh, they had two groups as well, a control group that received intranasal saline. Uh, the other group used uh, cocaine, uh, again two milligrams per kilogram. And in this study uh, they were blinded the entire way through. Uh, they, did the, they measured variables just like last time. Uh, and then what was different about this study was that uh, the control groups, uh, five of them got, uh, and this was 15 in group one, so five out of the 15 got uh, saline, uh, and then all 15 of the group two patients uh, were either randomly assigned to get saline or propranolol, and that was given 15 minutes after cocaine administration. So the reason why they put in a pacing uh, catheter was so that they paced all these patients to maintain heart rate, so that basically everyone was blinded and they didn't know which group got what. And they took the measurements just like before. Uh, they had pretty similar, in, you know, angiographically uh, uh, results for, you know, uh, certain people had one vessel, two vessel, three vessel. Uh, they did exclude one person. They actually had several more uh, that they initially had recruited, but one person had uh, severe disease of his left main coronary artery and so they excluded uh, him from doing the rest of uh, the rest of the, uh, the medications. So uh, back to the results, the group one, uh, there was no difference uh, in variables uh, before or after saline administration and in the five that got propranolol, uh, there was again no variables were altered. In group two, uh, the patients <coughs> Uh, who received uh, uh, intranasal cocaine, similar to the previous study. Uh, patients had increased in arterial pressure, rate pressure product, trans cardiac oxygen content different, and then despite an increase in myocardial oxygen, oxygen demand, uh, coronary vascular resistance increased and coronary blood flow decreased. Again, similar to the previous study, no subject developed chest pain or ECG changes suggestive of ischemia. Uh, so in the groups that got, okay, so then they, the subgroup, uh, the patients that got saline, there was no changes. Uh, and, then, and then in the 10 patients who received propranolol after cocaine, systolic arterial pressure declined slightly, uh, but mean arterial pressure and rate pressure product were, and, well, were unchanged, I'm sorry. Although there was no change in myocardial oxygen demand, coronary sinus blood flow decreased an additional 15%, or a total of 22% from baseline, uh, and coronary vascular resistance increased an additional 19%, and that was about 46% uh, up from baseline. In uh, five of the 10 uh, subjects, um, four of them had and one of them didn't have coronary disease, one or more of the epicardial coronary arterial segments constricted more than 10% in response to propranolol. In one subject, uh, complete coronary artery occlusion occurred, 
and he had clinical symptoms of myocardial ischemia and ECG changes to, uh, consistent with ST segment elevation. Uh, luckily though, they gave him sublingual nitroglycerin and uh, it completely reversed uh, those effects. Uh, and again, uh, they go on, you know, using their using the statistics that they used, uh, all of those changes uh, before and after uh, uh, cocaine, and then uh, before and after uh, propranolol, uh, those changes were significant. Yes, this is the you know this study that scared everybody. That it was it was small, admittedly, ten patients who got propranolol, which is the only available beta blocker at the time, and then got. Um, on top of cocaine, and they had, you know, an additional 15 to 19 percent change in their coronary blood flow and vascular resistance. And then one of them, of course, had ischemia, which I guess was sort of the anecdote that, you know, made everyone sit up and take take attention. Um, you know, and they did not try to rescue them with pentolamine, mm -hmm. um, but as we still see, that's been the recommendation that pentolamine be used exclusively, or certainly. In the cases where beta blockers are accidentally used or inadvertently used, that that's used as the rescue agent as well. Um, but yeah, I think um, you know this is a pretty good study. Both of them are pretty mm -hmm. good studies. I don't think I agree with you. I don't think it'll ever be done again. She'll never be able to recruit people and give them cocaine after their cath anymore. But um, at the time, it was still an option, so we didn't know. What year was that? It was 1990 and 1989 in the first one, so it was like the late 80s when this was being done. And it wasn't big numbers, but they um, certainly was enough to prove the point of uh, the fact that cocaine causes uh, coronary constriction, specifically pr predominantly through its alpha effect, and certainly beta agents, or at least the available beta agent at the time, um, caused increased um, risk of coronary ischemia. So that's what got everyone's attention, got everyone nervous about the combination it's in. Anything else in there that they say in the discussion? On, um, no, that was pretty much. They pretty much made the exact same conclusions that they had from the uh, other article, and kind of they had pretty similar limitations in their uh, in their discussion as well. Again, you know, kind of you know, the t the statistical uh, power of these studies were were pretty small, just because they didn't have a lot of subjects recruited. Um, but. At least they were, you know, definitely statistic, uh, statistical uh, significantly uh, changes that they noted in the groups that got the cocaine versus the patients that got saline. All right. Well, I'll pick up and talk about the next two studies that basically look at as the cocaine epidemic sort of peaked throughout the 90s, people were trying to come up with a way to approach um, them. The first one is from Feldman et al. out of Boston, and it, it talks about acute cardiac ischemia in patients with cocaine-associated complaints. And the second one talks about cocaine chest pain observation unit, perhaps one of the first observation units. So I'll just sort of briefly summarize these, and we'll talk about the new one. So the first study, again, talks about how cocaine use has increased from uh, 5.7 million in the early 80s up to... Uh, up to 5.7 million in 85 from lower numbers before that. And the incidence of acute MI uh, varied in earlier reports from 0 to 31%. Of course, they were somewhat selective and biased to the highest numbers, but most of the two perspective studies felt the incidence of acute MI in cocaine users who present with chest pain is around 5%, plus or minus or so. So this study was actually sort of a study that was buried within another study. They were evaluating this acute 
cardiac ischemia time insensitive predictive instrument clinical trial, which was basically like a decision rule, if I remember this study, uh, for if you ask six questions of patients with chest pain, you can strategize as far as who's at high risk or low risk. And from this bigger trial of 10 uh, different public and private hospitals, they're able to pull out a subgroup of cocaine users. Let's see if we can get the number there. They had that. It was conducted in 1993 and was looking at this computerized device. And they looked at patients who were 18 years or older who either had reported self-reported cocaine use or ultimately had a positive toxicology screen for cocaine metabolites. Um, and those called that group the cocaine-associated symptoms. And then they looked at 30-day follow-up for those folks. Um, they were told to come back in 24 hours for an EKG and a repeat CPK, which is the biomarker of choice at that time. And if they didn't, they had a phone call made to them. And they used the classic definition of an acute MI with history and EKG changes and a biomarker. And they described unstable angina as the Canadian Society Class 4 rules, which is new onset or change within three days prior of unstable uh, angina in patients with confirmatory cardiac diagnostic testing or EKG changes. So in the big study, they almost had 11,000 patients, of which 2.7%, 293, self-reported the use of cocaine or had positive tox screens. And it varied by hospital, and um, they didn't say which hospitals were urban or rural or suburban, but it varied from 0.3% in one hospital up to 8.3% in another hospital at trial sites. Most of these were male. Um, average age was about 33. Um, of all the risk factors, tobacco use was the most commonly frequently identified co-risk factor. Um, almost 90% uh, were uh, cocaine reported using patients and 7% 7, 7 had a prior history of MI. And chest pain was almost always the chief complaint for most of these folks. Um, so the patients with cocaine-associated symptoms were more likely um, than their cohorts in this bigger group of over 11,000 to be male current smokers or have a history of chest pain than the non-cocaine users. Um, they were more likely to be admitted to the ICU, 14% versus 8%, and less likely to actually have an MI, 0.7% versus 2.4%. So most patients who presented out of this large cohort of 11,000 of the ones who with cocaine-associated chest pain were actually discharged directly from the ED. 38% um, of them, 38, 23% of them, which is 38 total patients returned for their scheduled appointments, so not a very good follow-up rate to pass cocaine users to come back the next day. Um, and of them, um, uh, it doesn't say really what happens to those, but uh, cardiac enzymes were available uh, for 85% of the patients, which is kind of surprising even historically that cardiac enzymes were not used routinely in chest pains. Um, of those that got admitted, 86% uh, had serial cardiac enzymes and 20 patients had an elevation on ED arrival, which is 7% and 2, 2 or 10% more had an acute MI. 60% um, had follow-up CPK uh, results, uh, including almost all of those, but not all of those were admitted. And there were no deaths or readmissions for cardiovascular complications that noted in a 30-day follow-up. Um, only two patients out of their almost 300 patients actually who used cocaine who presented with cocaine-associated chest pain actually had an MI, so 
satisfy criteria with a diagnostic uh, EKG and biomarker. And four patients felt uh, met the criteria for unstable angina. So six patients out of almost 300 patients had a coronary-related instability as a result of cocaine use. So basically, this is just sort of sets you up for the statistics that patients were seeing, hospitals were seeing a lot of patients with cocaine use and chest pain, and um, but the numbers who actually had acute coronary disease were very few, but at the time, sort of the, the bias was to obviously admit or do something at the time, it basically was usually like a three-day admission to get serial biomarkers. I remember the days we got CPKs and LDHs and LDH ratios, and we watched them for three days in the hospital. And so they were taking up a lot of hospital beds for um, a yield of about 1% who actually had coronary disease. So the question is what to do with um, all those patients. And uh, one of the innovations I think that came out of this was the observation unit. This was the early days of the observation unit that we have now. So the second article from the New England Journal um, at about the same time, it was a little bit later, February of 2003, is validation of a brief observation period for patients with cocaine-associated chest pain out of Michigan and Pennsylvania. And uh, Judd Hollander, who is associated with a lot of these studies, his name is on that, along with the lead author, Jim uh, Weber. And um, you know, they certainly go over the usual. There's a lot of cocaine users out there. and But basically what they did, um, that, and they said in 2000, there was uh, uh, 175,000 cocaine-related visits to the emergency departments in the United States in one study with the cost of caring for these patients exceeding $83 million annually. And they were looking for a, uh, a way to safe and, and rapidly discharge so don't have um, coronary disease. So this was a two-year study from January 98 to 2000 of a chest pain observation unit, which basically a longitudinal cohort and a follow-up for uh, death for all causes for 30 days in Flint, Michigan, and they were enrolled, if they were 18 or older, came to the ER, reported the use of cocaine during the week before, or had a positive tox screen for cocaine metabolites. They were excluded if the chest pain could be ex uh, explained by a radiologic abnormality or trauma or other clear, absolutely clear non-cardiac causes. And in addition, high-risk patients were directly admitted to the hospital, excluded from the analysis. You came in, you had EKG changes, you, uh, you got admitted, and that was not this group. This is a group which presumptively had a normal EKG. They had a structured data collection and an investigative team that tried to break their EKGs down into categories as normal or suggestive, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, and then they used the cardiomarkers at that time and finally quantum shifted over to troponins, and everyone was getting troponins by this point in time, the difference a few years makes and they all had tox urine screens done. And they were watched with serial biomarkers, and if after nine hours of observation uh, and normal biomarkers and EKGs, they had a cardiology consult, and if they were without evidence of myocardial necrosis or ischemia, they underwent stress testing, and based on the positive or negative of that, they were either admitted or discharged or further stratified with uh, typically, they said, uh, dipyramidal uh, stress testing. Uh, the further definitive uh, uh, diagnosis. And then they contacted everyone 30 days after discharge if they could find them and tried to find out what happened to them. And just to make sure they were not missing anyone who died in the interim, they went through searching the National Death Index to make sure that um, somebody hadn't died and just disappeared. So 
basically their results were they ended up with a similar number to the other study, 344 patients with cocaine reported chest pain. 42 of those were actually admitted uh, and for further evaluation, so it was left about 302 patients who were entered into this observation unit to study. Um, the vast majority of patients were able to be contacted. They, they did find a um, couple in the National uh, Death Index, which is 1% of their total group, who had died and weren't able to be contacted. Um, urine drug screening was positive in the vast majority, 94%. Cocaine use was admitted by self-report in 247 out of 302. And most of those said that they had used it within the preceding week. And 68% of them said they had used it within the last 24 hours. Um, they all got aspirin, they all got nitrates, they all got benzos, or, well not all, but almost all. Uh, about 30% got benzos. Four received beta blockers. None of them had a, a bad outcome as a result of that, of that small subgroup. Um, and about 158 out of 300 ultimately went stress testing at the end of their nine hour, 12 hour observation. Four of those 158 had a positive result. All four got cathed. Two of those four had multivessel coronary disease. One had non-occlusive coronary disease and one had um, a false positive test because he had normal coronaries. Um, 30 day survival, almost everybody was available for uh, survival at 30 days except the two that they found by the National Death Index. Two deaths, those deaths were not from cardiovascular causes. One of them died from a gunshot wound, the other from heroin overdose. So the chance of dying from cocaine associated coronary disease was not uh, because they missed anything there. Four patients did have a non-fatal MI during the 30-day follow-up period for 1.6%. Um, all four, of course, had continued to use cocaine, um, and all four also had additional cardiac risk factors, you know, begging the question that perhaps they should have been intervened somehow with their risk factor amelioration. So again, this shows a low incidence of uh, coronary-associated events with co cocaine users. They came up with a way of uh, observation unit, which we t now tend to use not just for coronary patients, but for many other patients with low to uh, moderate low risk of uh, acute ischemia with uh, chest pain units. We certainly do that in our hospital now. They, uh, they mentioned uh, the other big study that had gone on at about the same time, the CHOCPA study, cocaine-associated chest pain study, which was done by the Judd Hollander group, I believe, as well, and most of the hospitals around New York City. None of those patients um, sustained ventricular arrhythmias on arrival, or, and they only developed heart failure on a few of those uh, patients. So again, they were able to show with a safe rule-out protocol, which has since become relatively standard for other patients, you were able to pick which patients did or did not have a risk of coronary artery disease. But they didn't address what, what now is the, the controversial question, which had been accepted dogma for the last 25 years is that ever since Lang studies is we should not give beta blockers to um, should not give beta blockers to um, anybody with uh, cocaine use. Um, so, just last month in the Annals of Emergency Medicine, um, a now somewhat controversial article was published by um, Philip Tillo and his group out of the Bronx in New York, uh, talking about that, looking back and talk about that article. We have Pat to present sort of the main uh, uh, part of the article and someone to discuss some of the uh, statistics used. We have our own Craig Newgard from Department of Emergency Medicine Research Department 
talk about uh, some of that. So first, we'll start off with Pat. All right, so the title of this article is uh, Beta Blockers Are Associated with Reduced Risk of Myocardial Infarction After Cocaine Use by Philip Gatillo from the Bronx, uh, published in Annals of Emergency Medicine, February 2008. So we've already talked all about the alpha and beta uh, effects of, of cocaine, uh, and uh, that's in the introduction, so we're, we're going to skip on through that and go straight to the uh, study itself. So this study in and of itself was a retrospective cohort study uh, of uh, patients admitted to uh, Jacoby Medical Center in the Bronx, New York. They included all patients that were admitted to the uh, uh, any, pretty much any service they had who tested positive for cocaine on a urine tox screen between July 1st, 2000 and Jan June 30th, uh, 2005. Uh, the only exclusion criteria they really had was any patient that had been prescribed data blockers as an outpatient, but uh, did not receive them during the course of their admission because they couldn't be, they decided to do this because they couldn't be certain whether data blockers were present on this patient or not, and weren't sure where to categorize them. Um, and basically what they did was they went back through the database and found all the people that tested positive for cocaine and then reviewed their charts. Uh, and saw whether they were prescribed beta blockers in the ED or course of admission, final outcomes. And really the outcomes that they were looking for primarily was myocardial infarction, and the second was in-hospital mortality. Uh, myocardial infarction was defined as a troponin I of greater than 0.1, or significant ST elevations in two contiguous leads on ECG associated with chest pain or some type of anginal equivalent. Uh, and they basically used this, uh, was from the uh, European Society of Cardiology and the American College of Cardiology Committee guidelines. And they basically defined mortality as mortality. That was probably the easiest sentence to write in the whole paper. Um, so, and it was pretty much mortality at any point in the hospitalization for any cause. All right, and so then they went back through, they, they and did the, the typical levels in the lab and then primary data analysis, they, uh, they did a whole bunch of different uh, statistics, and I'm very glad that Craig is here to talk about. Uh, but uh, basically, uh, lots, lots of, uh, they ended up doing sensitivity analysis and regression models and all sorts of things for, to, for this uh, uh, retrospective cohort that they were looking at. So I'll go through the results here, and then we can let Craig talk about the, uh, the statistics they did. So the study in and of itself, there, but during their uh, five-year period, there were 363 admissions involving 307 patients. Um, the uh, and they kind of got the typical uh, figure one here, where they uh, they showed 15 patients were excluded because they had been prescribed beta blockers as an outpatient, uh, but not as inpatients. 38. Uh, patients were excluded because they did not get a troponin and shouldn't be classified, thus giving you 310 admissions with troponin measurements. There were uh, 33 patients that had uh, ed, uh, administered uh, beta blockers, and 277 uh, patients were not administ administered beta blockers. Um, so, and basically, ultimately, uh, they're going on to their results, they showed that there were uh, two patients that were administered beta blockers prior to the development 
of an MI uh, that had, so two out of the 33 had uh, an MI when they were given beta blockers and 31 did not, whereas 72 patients out of the 277 patients that did not receive beta blockers had an MI. Okay, so real uh, characteristics of the study that they, they thought it was important to look at here, they, they looked at uh, basically, the patients who received beta blockers in general were older. They had more hypertension, more history of heart failure, and less history of asthma. They uh, typically had a higher systolic blood pressure on admission, higher glucose, and lower serum albumin. And uh, also, of, of the group that did have echocardiograms, the people that uh, got beta blockers also had lower ejection fractions. So in general, they, I think they're trying to show here that it was not necessarily a healthier population that were that the beta blockers were given to <coughs> as well. They actually were, I guess, a sicker population overall. Yeah. I mean, you have to assume there's obviously some retrospective bias because there's a period of time when people are saying don't use beta blockers. So either they didn't know the patients were using cocaine, which is a possibility, or they knew they were using cocaine but decided that they're going to do the standard treatment for acute MI, which is to give beta blockers because for some reason these patients were higher risk one way or the other in their assessment. And, and there's really no, when you're going back through the chart, there's obviously no way to, to decide whether that was a, uh, a conscious decision or whether they, you know, it was just urine tox screen that showed it or whether it was a, and you didn't get it back in real time or not. And they, they do discuss that a little bit later as well in here. Um, but so the main results they had, uh, that two patients that received beta blockers uh, uh, had a, so of the, of the group that had beta blockers, two, 33 patients, two had an MI after receiving the beta blocker. One of these was three and a half hours after receiving the beta blocker, so they questioned whether the beta blocker is still present. Um, ultimately, the percentages in the two groups were 6.1% in the group that did receive beta blockers versus 26% in the uh, group of patients using cocaine that did not receive uh, beta blockers. A confidence interval there was you know, ten percent to thirty percent. So pretty. No. So it was a ten percent to thirty percent confidence interval is pretty, pretty strong. Uh, and then, so then they also looked at uh, no patient given beta blockers had an ST elevation MI, whereas nine patients not given beta blockers had an ST elevation MI. Um, so. That then they went back and kind of looked at patients that had an elevated in a had had an elevation in troponin, but not quite to the level that was defined as a as an MI, and only one of the patients with a myocardial infarction, but with a positive troponin test result received metoprolol, um, and that was 24 hours before measurement. And if you include this in the beta blocker group. They're, they felt like there was still a trend towards a uh, beneficial effect of beta blockers in preventing troponin, uh, but the uh, um, confidence interval uh, was 0.8 to 31%, so that just crossed one there. Okay, um, and then, so then there was another thought that some patients might have had a initial uh, myocardial event and then received a beta blocker and then had a second myocardial event on top of that. So they looked for a second peak in the uh, in the troponin level 
and no patient who received beta blockers had a, by that definition, had a second myocardial infarction during hospitalization, whereas four patients who were not given beta blockers did have a second myocardial infarction. Um, and the number of patients that they had, looking at their secondary uh, objective, the number of patients that they had that actually died in, in the hospital was, was 13, so it was a pretty low number. Only one of those patients did have a beta blocker, and uh, that patient they describe as basically receiving lytics, uh, died of a pericardial tamponade after receiving lytics for a uh, ST elevation uh, uh, MI. So may or may not be related there. And it they, don't just, they don't give statistics on that, but that seems like a pretty uh, dramatic number. One patient who got a beta blocker died versus 13 who didn't receive beta blockers died. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think the numbers are just low enough that their mm -hmm. that their uh, uh, confidence intervals are going to be pretty wide on that. And you know, a lot of the other deaths seem to be of things that were probably not uh, cardiac related. There were a lot of uh, deaths. Seven of the deaths deaths were from sepsis. One was from a GI bleed, and I think only five of the others were from cardiac arrest. So whether or not that had to do with the beta blockers or not, I, I can't say. So, but the overall adjusted incidence of death was 1.7% uh, in uh, the group that did receive beta blockers versus 4.5 in those that did not receive beta blockers. And then they go into the statistics and the sensitivity analysis on, on their data to show the, uh, that it's good. And to talk about that is, is Craig, who I'm very glad he's here because I've been trying to figure out propensity scores all morning long. Okay, thanks Dr. West. Um, so I'll sort of cover a synopsis here of uh, what they did analytically. And as has been previously mentioned, this was a retrospective study. Um, as it's generally assumed in retrospective studies that uh, look for a uh, intervention or a therapeutic agent that's been, um, that's been utilized, the uh, uh, allocation of patients into the different um, uh, treatment groups is generally done non-randomly. This is a pretty safe assumption to make. That is, in this case, for beta blockers, uh, these groups are not perfectly balanced. It was not randomly decided who was going to get a beta blocker and who was not. And uh, for this reason, um, uh, some of the statistical processes are very important in order to try to balance those groups and to try to make causal inferences. That is, was there not only an association between beta blocker and outcome, but there was a direct link. And so uh, in order to do that, do that first they, uh, they mentioned these multivariate generalized estimating equations, uh, uh, regression models, and uh, this is sort of a, a long-winded term that basically means that uh, they recognized that there were a portion of patients, just over 30 patients that had multiple presentations, um, it would be incorrect to assume that each of those presentations was absolutely independent, right? This is the same person presenting, you know, multiple times. So these uh, general estimating equation models uh, are able to, to account for correlated data. In this case, it was multiple patients presenting multiple times. So that was a, a very appropriate modeling selection in order to account for the clustering of those patients. And, uh, and then this propensity score, which um, basically is, is an alternative to a standardized multivariable model. 
that essentially tries to recreate the randomization process. So in a randomized clinical trial, patients are evenly allocated to, to different groups and are generally balanced for all the covariates, whether they're measured or not measured. Um, as uh, That's a direct result of having control over the allocation. In a non-randomized trial, or in this case a retrospective study, we can use analytic means such as the propensity score to try to recreate who was allocated to beta blocker therapy and who was not. So the propensity score is simply a value from zero to one. It's a probability of having received beta blockers. And they generate this by a separate model where they basically dump the kitchen sink full of variables into it and create this probability from zero to one for whether you got beta blockers. Um, it's still not clear whether, whether propensity adjusted models are any better than just a very large multivariable model. But in this case, they had about 300 patients, which is a modest to small sample size. And uh, if you put too many uh, variables into a standard model, it just things start to get unstable. So this is a way for them to try to collapse a large number of, of variables, other factors that they have that may have played a role in who got beta blockers and who did not collapse that into the propensity score and then you add that score into the final multivariable models that they mentioned include such other things as uh, systolic blood pressure, sex, history of heart failure, etc. So they, they use this as a balancing mechanism. Um, a few other points here is that in the, the sensitivity analyses uh, basically consists of various subgroups where they looked at pieces of the main sample. So um, they did the, the full model, the, the full sample, and then they also looked, restricted it down to just the first presentation or first admission for patients, in which case there was no longer clustered data, which is why they say they use a standard logistic regression model. So the GEE, or generalized estimating equations, no longer needed there. Then they looked at those that just presented with chest pain, um, you know, a few other cuts of the data, um, with each of these cuts of data, depending on how you, how you restrict it, uh, often it will get whittled down a little bit more because of missing values. So some patients didn't have cardiac enzymes checked, so they were out of it. So uh, as you're doing more and more subgroup analyses, there's more and more suspicion over you know, the interjection of bias just by how you cut the data. So it makes those sensitivity analyses, although important, a little bit um, suspect. But uh, and the last point I will mention is that if you look at table four that includes the odds ratios, basically the sort of money table, if you will, of this article, um, this basically is a summary of the, the, the results of all the models and the subgroup analyses, and uh, the point estimates for the odds ratios are quite small. We're looking at things like 0 0.06, 0 0.08, 0 0.09, 0 0.01. Um, that's a very large magnitude of effect. This essentially suggesting that there's a greater percent, you know, greater than 90% odds of benefit from beta blockers, which is quite large and almost implausible. Um, uh, and not to say that there is not a benefit of beta blockers, you know, from these numbers, but it just makes one a little bit suspicious about whether there's other forms of bias in the analyses that makes it look too good. Um, and then also if you look at some of the confidence intervals, depending on how the data is cut, some are wide, some are narrow. Um, in general, it's the first admission that holds up 
uh, as far as having a, a quote unquote statistically significant benefit, and as the odds ratios are less than one, uh, except for the uh, the MI all patient uh, full cohort. Okay, so All right. Yeah. So, so it sounds like you're saying with um, using, you know, I think what we would consider quality statistics, the odds ratio, good discussion of what propensity balances this not very well matched set of groups where biases exist, it's, it's, it comes down in favor of using beta blockers mm -hmm. if we believe this as a, as a good pilot retrospective study. So the question is should we should go further? Are, are, do you see any limitations into how they did this as far as large numbers excluded or I think overall their 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 methods were good their their models were appropriate they you know at least as far as the the data that they had were concerned I think they did a good job of torturing these these data um, one one important piece of the of the balancing score propensity score and these other factors is that um, one very critical limitation is that these are only able to balance for uh, the observed covariates. So if there are important confounders that are not included, not collected data points, not part of the database, um, you, you are not able to account for those things. So if there are important confounders that are simply not there, the propensity score is not going to fix that. Right. So they can't say like how many patients' blood pressures went up after beta blocker, how many patients needed rescue pentolamine or rescue nitroglycerin as a result of getting a beta blocker. None of that was actually looked at in detail. We, we have to presume or guess that maybe those were low numbers. Right, or if there was just something else about the individual patient presentations. Why did some people get the beta blocker? Maybe it was sort of a peripheral piece of information that they had used cocaine and happened to have a positive tox result, but it was not clinically valuable enough to really worry about it and so they gave them the beta blockers and didn't think you know didn't think too much about it as opposed to those patients that came in with very acute cocaine toxicity that they'd say well we're, we're definitely not going to use beta blockers here that piece of information however it could be quantified is you know may or may not really be captured in this and so those unobserved pieces of information at least that are not available in the data set um, can't be can't be corrected for by the, the propensity score or other balancing factors. All right, they, thanks a lot, Craig. Yeah. It was really, really helpful. So I guess the next question that gets asked is, is based on this study, this retrospective controversial study, is should we now do this in, in forward? Should we do a, a prospective study and arguing in two editorials for either side of that field, we will, there are two accompanying editorials in, the, in that same article same journal, I should say, one for and one against, uh, whether that should be done. So um, arguing, I guess, first for the, who's going to argue the con, will be playing the role of Dr. Hoffman, will be our own Nate McEwen. So yes, I had the uh, editorial entitled Cocaine and Beta Blockers, Should the Controversy Continue? And this was uh, written by Robert Hoffman out of the uh, New York University School of Medicine and the New York City Poison Center. Uh, so basically in his two-page uh, editorial, he kind of reviews uh, the uh, history of the use of beta blockers and cocaine. Uh, and he starts off by saying, you know, as cocaine abuse really became prevalent in the late 70s, 
uh, you know, when these patients came in, clinicians were really challenged for what to do with these patients. Uh, you know, he describes, you know, patients with profound hypertension and tachycardia, but also included uh, a degree of psychomotor agitation and hyperthermia. And then all of a sudden, you know, these patients would seize and have cardiovascular collapse and die. Uh, there was a number of articles by a gentleman named Repolt. Uh, and uh, he used propranolol and it started to gain uh, rapid acceptance as one of the therapeutic interventions for toxicity. In uh, as you know what was probably pretty uh, standard for you know a lot of treatments at that time uh, was never really evaluated in a rigorous, rigorous objective scientific uh, fashion although just really anecdotally a lot of the patients appeared to respond. Uh, and then they say as time, and he goes on to say as time progresses, the same uh, forward thinkers uh, added clonidine, uh, stating that propranolol administration sometimes observed to result in unpleasant adverse effects such as hyperparexia, dyspnea, headache, and diastolic hypertension. And then he goes on to say, fortunately, this practice never became popular. So then, within a couple of years after uh, these articles had come out, uh, there were several animal experiments which kind of shed light on what uh, a lot of these clinicians were actually seeing. Uh, and uh, the, these animal studies uh, showed that propranolol exacerbated both seizures and contributed to more deaths. Uh, and so uh, they, these trials really kind of brought about the mechanism of cocaine poisoning and brought, you know, hyperthermia and psychomotor agitation. Uh, as really the critical, you know, uh, sequelae in, in, in these patients that died. So then they kind of suggested more conservative management strategies using sedation and cooling. Uh, and they actually showed certain models, clinical uh, observations that sedation and cooling were often sufficient to resolve all vital sign abnormalities. So then really beta blockers really kind of fell out of favor. Uh, and but though uh, it kind of came back in when they were looking at the interaction between beta blockers and the benefits of alpha, you know, blocking action, uh, you know, using uh, agents uh, that had a relatively short duration of action, uh, such as uh, lilbetalol or esmolol, seemed logical to kind of bring that in. Uh, there was a case series of a use of esmolol in seven patients with cocaine toxicity, and several patients actually appeared to get better. Uh, one developed significant hypotension without a change in pulse rate, another developed severe diastolic hypertension, uh, which they thought kind of presumably resulted from an unopposed axis of alpha adrenergic tone. Uh, there was also a couple other case reports that provided support for use of labetalol uh, with some similar hemodynamic variations uh, in other animal models, uh, which did seem to favor beta antagonism, uh, but a couple other of those really didn't show much benefit. Um, and so then he goes on to say, well, in contrast to the limited, somewhat conflicting data, you know, the use of beta blockers has really been shown to uh, affect um, patients that have had acute mitocardial infarction, you know, not related to cocaine uh, use, uh, and they've been so well accepted, they've been adopted into national quality uh, of care measures. Uh, but. You know, he goes on to say, despite this acceptance, recent data has raised concerns that early use of beta blockers uh, in patients with MI increases the risk of cardiogenic shock. So maybe not quite as clear cut as uh, we've thought before. Um, so he talks a little bit about uh, patients that do use cocaine uh, and their symptoms. 
uh, or their presentation, they're significantly younger, uh, and they really lack other risk factors except uh, for tobacco use. Uh, and he goes on to say that patients that do have cocaine-related chest pain have very low incidence of myocardial infarction. Again, as previously mentioned, somewhere about 5%. Uh, and then with follow-up, recurrent chest pain is relatively common, especially in people that do use cocaine. But, however, the subsequent morbidity is low and mortality is usually attributed to non-cardiac causes. Uh, he goes on to quote a couple of studies, um, and he, you know, he kind of makes a statement where uh, that says that you know for those who survived to reach the hospital. So he, you know, he kind of talks about um, that there's probably a definite group of people that use cocaine that have an MI or dysrhythmia um, and die, you know, pre-hospital. But those who actually make it to the hospital that have chest pain and cocaine use. Uh, pretty much, you know, in-hospital mortality is going to be about zero. Uh, so, and then, you know, he kind of talks about the previous articles that we uh, had discussed with, with uh, Dr. Lang uh, and talking about uh, in these animal models, uh, the vasoconstriction uh, being exacerbated by propranolol, alleviated by fentolamine. Uh, he, there was also another animal model that we didn't talk about, but uh, they used uh, labetalol. Uh, and really didn't show a change uh, in uh, uh, in uh, cardiac catheterization uh, variables. Uh, so uh, it's kind of it was these uh, studies that really um, uh, brought about uh, evidence that he says pretty sufficient uh, that the American Heart Association Internal Liaison Committee on Resuscitation really cautions against the routine use of beta blockers in patients with chest with uh, cocaine use and chest pain. So then he goes on to talk a little bit about, you know, the article that we just reviewed, Datillo. Um, so he kind of, you know, had some concerns about this study. Uh, one was, you know, the use of uh, their inclusion criteria, which was the use of a positive urine test. Uh, you know, he talks a little bit about, you know, most of the time the urine remains positive for about two to three days after intermittent cocaine use, but chronic users can have positive urines for up to two weeks. So he felt that their time association uh, was a little weak um, because, you know, in past studies, really about 90% of patients with documented cocaine-associated uh, MIs usually present within about 24 hours of their last cocaine use. Um, he also, you know, talks about the difference between prospective evaluation and obviously retrospective review, uh, and he really, uh, you know, um, was cautioned against the use of, you know, really a positive urine test and, you know, patients that presented for a number of the different illnesses because that's basically they just took anyone that had, you know, cardiac biomarkers and a positive urine test to, for inclusion in that study. Uh, so kind of in summary, uh, his his uh, decision tree, you know, the decision, you know, for clinicians, the decision to use a beta blocker should really be based on a risk-to-benefit analysis. Uh, and he goes on to say it's really difficult to suggest a cardiovascular benefit for but for using beta blockers in a disorder when only five to six percent of patients to the presenting with the presenting complaint uh, will have an MI, uh, and those who rule in will have an in-hospital mortality rate that approaches zero, and those who rule out have an excellent survival even when they continue to use cocaine. Uh, and again, you know, there's kind of you know some evidence that shows that, you know, using the beta blockers can be potentially dangerous. 
so he actually, you know, goes on to to really strongly admonish the author's call for a prospective trial uh, to be not only premature but frankly quite dangerous. Um, you know, he you know he says that you know the majority of patients with cocaine-associated chest pain will continue to use cocaine. Uh, after discharge, so giving these beta these patients beta blockers will not only repeat a practice abandoned by its pioneers nearly 30 years ago for good reason, but also subject an unpredictable subset of these individuals to lethal drug interactions so well described in controlled animal investigations. And his final sentence is, failure to learn from history dooms us to repeat it. And so echoing in the words of George Santanyana, uh, says, don't, don't do this, uh, we should learn from the past, this new study doesn't really uh, enlighten us that much. Um, but on, you know, on the other hand, even though 5% of the patients who use cocaine have an MI, I think you'd probably say 5 or 10% of patients who come in with chest pain actually have an MI either. So the question is, what, the, what do you do with the other 95% who don't have an MI and use cocaine? Are we actually increasing their risk of death? Is there a decision rule we can predict who's really hyperdynamic, who's really using cocaine, where we would really want to use it? And I guess that's part of the equation in designing a future study of patients who should, um, in the uh, future, uh, be enrolled in a study, should they be, demonstrate signs of cocaine toxicity as well as a positive tox screen or not. So to argue the pro argument here, taking the role of an editorial written by Callard Freeman and James Feldman from Vermont and uh, Boston, um, Pat. All right, so I'm going to go through cocaine, myocardial infarction, and beta blockers. Time to rethink the equation by Freeman and Feldman. All right, so uh, this again is in response to uh, Nate's uh, con argument. This is, this is the pro argument for uh, uh, possible use of beta blockers in a cocaine uh, chest pain and, the, and possible need for a study. And it, they kind of start reviewing some of the history and basically say that, you know, first, when when uh, cocaine toxicity was first noted in 1966 and 67, they, uh, the, the first uh, 50 or so patients that they noticed in San Francisco actually had a really good response to propranolol. Um, and it wasn't, and they didn't even really realize until 1982 that you started to have myocardial ischemia with it. They felt like it was a, a uh, strikingly specific antagonistic effect that they observed with propranolol. And then it was uh, used uh, pretty heavily until as a drug of choice for management of hypertension and acute cocaine intoxication until 1985 when people started to get worried about the unopposed alpha stimulation. Um, and, uh, and it's really kind of been uh, taboo and argued uh, against uh, since that time. However, then with this, argued that, with this article that was put out by Datillo, they found that you know, incidence of myocardial infarction and death was not increased in their subset with a positive urine drug screen uh, for uh, cocaine. So, uh, so they kind of go back through the uh, literature here to, that, that uh, you know, why beta blockers became contraindicated and go through the studies that we went through initially. Uh, but the author, the, the, they go through the Lang study that said in cocaine-induced chest pain, beta-adrenergic blockade should probably be avoided. And then it kind of became widely accepted cocaine-induced chest pain is, is caused by vasospasm and therefore beta blockers were uh, contraindicated. 
and it's kind of several, several reviews have said that this is a, a good idea. And then, although some authors do disagree, uh, who are these authors? Who are these heretics that should be tarred and feathered and banned from the house of of medicine? How dare they? Yes, that, that's, that's reference uh, 28, which uh, our very own uh, Zane Horowitz, I believe, is the second author of. All right, well, maybe we'll only tar and feather the lead author then. <laughs> so uh, they say, other than, other than those, heretic, those tar and feathered heretics, uh, this advice has been accepted for more than two decades. Um, so there are really two premises that uh, all of this is based on. First of all is that uh, cocaine-induced chest pain is predominantly due to vasospasm. And secondly, uh, that a beta blocker administration causes unopposed alpha stimulation, worsens coronary vasospasm, and then worsens the hemodynamic effects. And really both of these hypotheses, they argue, really lack rigorous uh, investigation thus far. Uh, so the next title is Myth Number One, Cocaine Chest Pain Equals Spasm. So, um, many, so they did go on to point out that during the, the early studies that did, that did this, basically they looked at, during the days before PCI, a lot of the uh, cardiac catheterizations were delayed uh, up to a week or so after the uh, patient was admitted. Um, and they say, although vasospasm may play a role in the uh, in, in this cocaine chest pain uh, complex, then you know, but cocaine really does a lot of other things: it increases blood pressure, pulse rate, uh, myocardial oxygen demands. It increase, increases uh, uh, plasminogen uh, activator inhibitor, uh, and really, they they feel like coronary artery thrombosis may be a major uh, pathway in cocaine-triggered acute myocardial infarction. Uh, so they looked through a whole bunch of uh, published uh, reports of cocaine-induced infarction, and uh, they found that in 9 of 12 patients who underwent early uh, catheterization, uh, th those patients all, within that being defined within 12 hours of their presentation, that all of those, 9 of those 12 patients had a thrombus in their uh, coronary artery. So thus, Lynn Credence decided that it really might be actually a thrombotic event rather than a vasospastic event. Um, the second myth that they want to uh, discuss is cocaine and beta blocker yields unopposed alpha effects. Um, yeah, and they point out that this hypothesis was first pr proposed uh, in to explain an observation of an increase in a blood pressure from 170 over 118 to 180 over 140 with a, a decrease in the pulse rate from 112 to 104 after administration of propranolol in a single subject. So that's kind of where this whole thing started. Uh, and then there were, uh, they also showed, seven, there were seven patients with cocaine intoxication treated with esmolol, which was a, uh, 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 and basically exacerbated hypertension was noted in one patient, but another patient also got hypotensive. So, uh, and then all the other evidence, and this is really in a, rodent and uh, pig models, and the kind of small numbers of the model systems, and uh, really kind of the clinical relevance of this is not known. So the first problem they felt like with the uh, unopposed alpha hypothesis is that uh, blood pressure really depends on a lot of other things besides vascular tone. Uh, pulse, you know, they said that there was other, that to explain the blood pressure and pulse rate earlier, there's an, there are other there are other explanations besides just the uh, unopposed alpha effect. And uh, the, 
So the second thing that they uh, so the second thing that they suggest here is that uh, in in the body there are catecholamines circulating all the time, and you have uh, epinephrine and norepinephrine both have alpha and beta effects, and uh, and generally uh, they kind of note in patients that have uh, severe trauma and patients that do have a large amount of circulating catecholamines where you would expect kind of the same type of reaction that you're having with cocaine, that uh, that beta blockers actually do uh, significantly uh, increase the amount of survivorship in uh, severe trauma. Whereas you would, if, if the unopposed alpha effect were actually true, then you, you would expect it to actually do the, have the exact same effect as it would in cocaine and cause worsening of outcome. Yeah, I mean, the theory is that there's beta effects may be not just blood pressure and vasoconstrictive, but may have to do with actual cell death in the cardiac myocyte and the beta blockers may actually protect against this. Again, this is all theory and animal models and no more proven than the beta blocker produces unopposed alpha effect based on, again, the few patients in the Lang studies we reviewed earlier. But uh, at least in the Lang model, they were able to show it as a, as a pure hemodynamic effect that in, indeed giving beta, uh, propranolol after cocaine made things worse. Okay. Uh, th then they go on to discuss uh, practical problems with avoiding the potential risk of uh, beta blocker, uh, of beta blockade. Uh, patients with uh, cocaine-triggered acute coronary syndrome are routinely treated with, uh, with beta blockers in everyday emergency medicine. And really, they point out that people aren't honest when they're reporting to us in the emergency department their use of cocaine. People, people lie. And your patients may not lie to you, but mine have definitely lied to me. Uh, and, you know, they, they base it on urinary tox screens, which, you know, if, if someone comes in in chest pain, you're not going to wait for their utox screen to come back four, five, six hours later, depending on when the patient can provide a urine. So, the patient, so, so these patients are treated with beta blockers all the time. And, you know, and there really are not that many bad case reports coming out of those uh, on a daily basis. Uh, and then they, they want to go into the potential benefits of beta blockade. Um, really, they, they talk, to, talk about in, in this study, there was, in, in their analysis, 6.1% of patients receiving a beta blocker had a, an MI, and then 26% who did not receive a beta blocker uh, did have an MI. So, you know, there's, a, there's a definitely a significant difference there. And if you look at, uh, you know, what beta blockers are indicated for, I mean, they're, they're a level one uh, recommendation from the Heart Association for ST elevation MI. It helps with uh, heart failure. It helps with uh, you know, without with outcome and mortality and all of these uh, 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 diseases. So you know, it's not really clear whether this is going to whether the, whether you know why why would we should take it away from these patients and not use it in uh, cocaine uh, chest pain patients. So uh, mm -hmm. they, they do kind of discuss some of the same uh, limitations that Nate discussed earlier. It's not really clear if the people extracting records were blinded and then kind of the discussion about how long the metabolites are in the urine uh, for some period of time. And, uh, you know, and so uh, whether they had cocaine and the effects of cocaine based on the urine, urinalysis was uh, 
you know, not clear in this. So, uh, final question is, is a clinical trial warranted? And they feel like the, a clinical trial really is the next logical step. You know, it's overall beta blockers have helped in other, other problems. They don't, they see a lot of theoretical reasons for it not, for the, that we're not using beta blockers in these patients. And with an actual retrospective, with a retrospective study that does show some benefit to the, uh, to the use of beta blockers in cocaine chest pain, they feel like that these patients, act, there is a potential that these patients actually could obtain a large benefit from the uh, use of beta blockers when they have uh, chest pain. And they don't see that there's any reason that they should be treated any differently. And they feel that the clinicians who hesitate to administer recommended therapy for acute coronary syndrome simply because, simply because of a positive urinary test for cocaine without physical evidence of cocaine toxicity may be doing their patients a disservice. So that's it. There you go. That's the argument for a uh, clinical trial. Yeah, I think it's it's going to be hard to to really narrowly define this question of clinical trial. You have to take patients not just have positive cocaine toxicity, but patients who have clinical findings in the throes of acute chest pain, who have cocaine toxicity, hypertension, tachycardia, the other findings we're all accustomed to seeing with cocaine um, toxicity. Somehow consent them for randomization to saline versus metoprolol, whatever the predominant beta block we use today, which is different than the original studies where they used intercoronary propranolol to demonstrate that you have vasoconstriction, and then come up with some meaningful outcomes because the risk of them dying really, I think, is pretty low. But we're not capping all these people, so we don't know what their coronary blood flow is. We can certainly look at who has higher peaks of, tri of troponin, who have worse echo findings if everybody gets an echo. Um, you know, maybe the ultimate bottom line is, you know, did we do any harm? Is the 30-day death rate higher or lower, as this other pilot study by Tillo showed? So I, I don't think we should slow down the, uh, the inquiry, natural, natural next step of inquiry to find out. I think it's going to be a real hard study to do right. And my worry is that it's going to be a lot of kind of bad studies where people just looked at the next 30 patients who came in with cocaine use and gave them beta blockers and report little cohorts and that nothing happens to, and I think all those studies will in fact be meaningless. But a good, well-designed study with safeguards and randomization may, may be the next uh, realistic step, and which is going to have to be done, probably multi-center uh, study where they're otherwise enrolling patients in other chest pain studies is probably the, the place to go for that. Um, so I was just going to say, on top of that, in this month's annals, March, there's a, uh, a supplementary section on hypertension. And there's an article by Judd Holland there on cocaine intoxication and hypertension, where he once again um, reiterates the somewhat 20-plus-year-old um, admonition not to use beta blockers. And in this month's, or yet to be published this month's circulation, there is an AHA scientific statement on the management of cocaine-associated chest pain with various authors, including Brian Gibbler and uh, Judd Hollander, again, again admonishing us not to um, use beta blockers in cocaine chest pain, but sort of admitting that specifically it hasn't been studied, uh, although from this there was some news splash in the last 48 hours about how we should all be asking every young patient with an acute MI whether or not they use cocaine so we can make that binary decision to yes or not use co uh, beta blockers early and upfront. I think that was on the national news in the last couple of days. So, any other including thoughts from 
folks, and we don't really see a lot of cocaine out west, but we see methamphetamines. And although the same sort of choka kind of studies haven't been done in large numbers, there have been some folks like Richards in Sacramento who have looked at this with chest pain um, and amphetamine use. And I think the same notion is there that amphetamines cause increased alpha and beta, amphetamines cause increased risk of coronary uh, presentations like chest pain, 